The numbers I want to share today are 43.1, taken from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, where God says through the prophet, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. This morning, we're going to look at the times in which these words were spoken in the lives of two kings, Ahaz and his son and successor, Hezekiah, who both reigned over the nation of Judah from 735 B.C. through 686 B.C. I'm also going to share a little bit about why these numbers, 43-1, have meant so much to me, especially over the past year. Let's, let's start there. I'm a communications person. I essentially write for a living, and I love what I do, never more so than for over the, the past 17 years, writing for an, inter- for an international consulting company. I wrote training materials and 963 issues of a newsletter that was sent every week around the world for more than 17 years. And I worked with my father-in-law, two brothers-in-law, and even people in this congregation. I shared an office with Bob Fugler. I worked with Donna Bolliker, Christy Brady, and with Nathan Harrison, who, in in addition to being just a gifted pastor, is an absolute beast with Microsoft Excel as well. And uh, the people I worked with were some of my closest friends, family, and some of my favorite people in the world. In addition, I had the blessing for 17 years for being, able, for being able to serve and become friends with people in more than 55 countries around the world. When there was a terrorist attack in Kenya or a, an Ebola outbreak in Liberia or Sierra Leone and I was praying for those countries, I wasn't just praying for the countries, I was praying for my friends. And uh, as I've shared in church before, about 70% of the year, I'd ride my bike to work in the Denver Tech Center and my ride each day was when I would worship. Um, and I loved my job. But as is often the case, God had different plans in mind for me. That business where I worked was sold and was sold again. And people I loved and, and worked with started to leave, sometimes in very hard and painful ways. And in April of last year, things started to change even faster. New organizational charts would be distributed, and my name and the things that I did weren't on them. And, uh, my friends in the office and around the world would ask, Brian, why aren't you on the org chart? And what about the newsletter you write? And they'd ask me as if I knew the answer. And um, uh, it was embarrassing, and, and it made me feel small. They actually uh, scheduled a party uh, at a fancy restaurant and sent an invitation to all the, the entire staff to celebrate their new organization and their new future together. And, and I was on the staff at the, at the time and I wasn't invited. And the morning before that party, I was asked to come into the CEO's office and the CEO was there and an attorney was there and they asked me to leave. And uh, they didn't want me. And I said, well, can I write a letter uh, just to say goodbye to my people, the people I've been working with for 17 years? And they said, no, we'll write it. And I asked the CEO, can I, can I put my stuff in the basement and come pick it up uh, tomorrow? And they said, no, we want you out today. I said, I rode my bike to work. I have two filing cabinets full of, of files. Do you want, them to, want me to put them on my back and ride them home on my bike? And they said, you better call somebody to get them out today. Uh, so I had to call my bride, and she and my 15-year-old son, Kobe, had to come right that moment and move, help me move unceremoniously out of my office. Um, I was embarrassed, I was ashamed, and I was humiliated in front of my bride and my 15-year-old son. July 28, 2015 
was a really bad day. And when I woke up at 4 a.m. the next morning to ride to work out of habit, I had nowhere to go. So I ride my, rode my bike to this church, and I sat on the steps right out in front and watched the sun come up. And I completely lost it. I was unemployed, scared, embarrassed. Most of all, I was unbelievably hurt. It was a week before my daughter's 18th wedding anniversary. My 22nd, uh, it was, <laughs> no. It was a week before my daughter's 18th birthday, my 22nd wedding anniversary, and uh, about 10 days before my two oldest kids, Samuel and Olivia, left for their first year as freshmen at college. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but before we do, let, let, let's pause and, and, and stop for a word of prayer. Father, this is your day. Thank you for your great, lovely, tenacious love for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 930 B.C., just a sec. In 930 B.C., the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, two nations. Israel to the north and the nation of Judah to the south, where the city of Jerusalem was found. And for several generations, both of these nations were threatened by the rise of the nation of Assyria, whose king in 746 B.C. was a man named Tiglath Pileser III. And the Assyrians were bad dudes. One book I read called them the Lord of the Massacres. Another said they glorified in their own cruelty. Lovers of violence, I read about them. To protect his nation from the Assyrians, the king of Israel forms an alliance with the king of Aram, and together they attack the nation of Judah. Now, if they feared the Assyrians, why would they attack Judah? They did this to try to grow their lands, to make themselves bigger and able to withstand the Assyrians, okay? And you, we see in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, the hearts of King Ahaz and the people of Judah are shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. So the king, and the, the king of Judah and the, and the people of Judah are, are scared about what's going to happen. They're petrified. Now, even though King Ahaz leaves a remnant of God's people as king of Judah, the scriptures record that Ahaz did not do right in the eyes of the Lord. He promoted wickedness in Judah. He made idols for worshiping Baals. He sacrificed his own son to false gods in the fire. In spite of King Ahaz and his unfaithfulness, God sends help. He sends the prophet Isaiah with a message. Chapter 7, verse 3. He tells Isaiah to meet King Ahaz south of the city of Jerusalem at the end of the aqueduct where it empties into the upper pool on the road to the public laundry. Now, remember this location because we're going to come back to it in, in a little bit, okay? And to help you remember, here's what that place looks like, or kind of looks like today. And God has one more command for Isaiah before he takes a tough message to a dark king at a very dark time. God says he wants Isaiah to take his son with him when he goes to see King Ahaz. And I can see Isaiah, and just, you can just picture what he's thinking at the time. You realize this dude burned one of his own sons as a sacrifice to a false god, right? And you want me to take my kid? And I'm a visual thinker, but for some kooky reason, when I imagine Isaiah taking his son to deliver King Ahaz this message, this is the image that I have. I don't know why. But this, this prophet pounding away at a king wearing a baby snuggly. And, and that's what's locked into my mind on that. 
And here was the message that Isaiah delivered that day on God's behalf as the forces of two countries were gathering to attack the city of Jerusalem. This is God's message to the people in Isaiah chapter 7, beginning with verse 4. Keep, keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. These two forces gathering to invade Judah and tear her apart, verse 7, it will not take place. It will not happen. And verse 9, God, through the prophet Isaiah, encourages Ahaz in this dark hour, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And then Isaiah invites Ahaz at God's direction in verses 10 through 11. Ask for a sign from your God. Ask anything. Be extravagant. Ask for the moon. In their darkest hour, God is encouraging Ahaz and the nation of Judah. God says, don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. To prove it, ask me for a sign. Ask anything. Ask for something crazy and I'll do it. But don't be afraid. And this prophecy is correct. God's promise is correct. The nations of Israel and Aram are unable to capture the city of Jerusalem. The people are safe, just as God promised. But instead of continuing to stand faith, to stand in God's, to stand in faith in God's promises, Ahaz decides he'd better do something on his own to protect his reign and his kingdom. You know what he does? He turns to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, for help. Tiglath-Pileser is the king that Judah's two invading nations fear. Remember, lords of the massacres, lovers of violence? 2 Kings 16, verses 7 and 8. Ahaz sends representatives to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, with this message. I'm your servant and your son, your vassal. Ahaz asks the king of Assyria, come and save me from the heavy-handed invasion of the king of Aram and the king of Israel. They're attacking me right now. Then Ahaz strips all the gold and silver from the palace and from the temple of God, and he goes personally to Assyria to grovel and give that silver and gold from God's temple to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, as protection money. And while he's there, Ahaz sees an altar, a place where sacrifices are made to pagan gods that impresses him. He thinks it's cool. He thinks, well, Tiglath-Pileser uh, uses this altar to make sacrifices to pagan gods, and it seems to be working with him. Well, maybe I'll hook myself up with one of these, and it'll work for me too. Um, and do you know what else Ahaz does? Listen to this. 2 Kings 16, verses 12 through 14. The old bronze altar that signals the presence of God, he displaced it from its central place and pushed it off to the side of his new altar. To draw a comparison... To, Think about what that means. Imagine coming to church one day and the pastor pulls the cross down off, the, off of where it's hanging, sticks it in the corner, puts a new altar in the center of the stage and says, we're going to talk about this now instead. We're going to worship this. That's what we're talking about here. All right? Don't we make some of the same mistakes, though, that we see in Ahaz as well, though? Instead of trusting in God and his promises, don't we sometimes put other things at the center of our lives, too? Or look around at what appears to be working for other people and want it for us in our lives as well. Like money, popularity, fame, personal happiness, or even security from others like Ahaz turns in this time to tiglath Pileser instead of to God. Such was the life of King Ahaz, king of Judah. Now, as I was sharing a few moments ago, 10 days after losing my job, we loaded up our car twice and drove our two oldest kids to start college. Olivia in Kansas, 
and Samuel in northern Arizona. So it was heartbreaking, twice, to say goodbye to our two oldest kids and leave them at college. And we still had two kids at home, both uh, high school sophomores. And my mornings with them and my bride were absolutely delightful. For 17 years, I'd been at my desk at 6 a.m. every morning for work. And uh, I'd never really been home in the mornings when my kids left for school. And so seeing what that was like was wonderful. We'd listen to praise music. We'd read the sports page. And I made breakfast every day. I even made this masterpiece right here. I made that. Does that not look tasty? All right. But the minute I heard the door close and my kids left for school, I, I still remember that sound. The thought that immediately popped into my mind when that door closed was, I got to find a job. What am I going to do? And uh, I, I, I never dreamed I'd be unemployed. Never. And uh, the thing that struck me so much through all of it, you guys, was how public my struggle was. So public, out in the opening, out in the open, in the name of networking, having to talk to my friends in church and my friends around the world and, and ask for help and tell them I was out of work. A, a dude does not do that, I thought. And um, especially not in front of my friends and family. And, and it made me feel weak and pitiful. And I'd be greeting people at church on Sundays and, and people would ask, how'd that interview go? Did you get that one? And over and over again, for each job, I'd have to say, no. No, I didn't get it. They chose someone else. And uh, irrational, I know, but I stopped riding my bike in the mornings because I didn't want people to see me out, out during the workday. And uh, as the months passed, my riding started to get a, a little rusty, and I wasn't speaking as well in my interviews, and I was freaking out. And... Uh, Rejection notices for jobs I'd apply for would, would come back every day in email or mail in what seemed like waves saying over and over again that uh, we want somebody different or just plain we don't want you. You're not what we're looking for. Every day I heard that stuff. Every day. And I'd have to tell my bride, uh, who was absolutely incredible through it all, and my kids, that job I applied for that I thought was so perfect, I didn't get it. They picked somebody else. It was humiliating over and over and over again. And uh, by December of last year, about a week before my two oldest kids came home from Christmas, for Christmas, I was down to my last interview before the end of the year. And it was me against one other finalist for an IT job downtown. And uh, I didn't get it. I'd gotten down from hundreds of applicants to just me and one other person, and I choked. How do you blow that? And uh, after the interview, I had to walk about a mile because I was too cheap to pay for parking downtown. And as I walked back to my car, I was despondent. I was absolutely crushed and just devastated. And from the pants pocket of my interview suit, my phone vibrated. I got in a text, text message, and, and we'll get back to that in just a moment. Tiglath Pileser III, king of Assyria, died in 727 B.C., Ahaz, the puppet king of Judah, died about a year later after a reign of 16 years, succeeded by his son Hezekiah, who became king, who became king of Judah at the age of 25. A and listen to this. Think about what these verses can mean to you, okay? 2 Kings 18, verses 5 through 8 record that 
unlike his father, Hezekiah put his whole trust in the God of Israel. There was no king quite like him, either before or after. He held fast to God, never loosened his grip, and obeyed to the letter everything God had commanded. And God, for his part, held fast to him through all his adventures. Isn't it cool? It is so cool to think that we have a God who holds fast to us through all our adventures in life, that we have a God who loves us like that? And 2 Kings 18 records that Hezekiah revolted against the king of Assyria, who was now a man named Sennacherib. Verse 7 says, Hezekiah refused to serve Assyria one more day. And in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, Assyria attacks Judah and captures all of the outlying cities. The city of Jerusalem stands alone against the entire nation of Assyria, the lords of the massacres, lovers of violence. Knowing that Sennacherib intends to attack Jerusalem as well, Hezekiah prepares for a fight. He fortifies the water supply, repairs the wall, builds towers, even built another wall around the city. Then he assembles his military leaders. He tells them, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there is greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to help us and to fight our battles. And verse 8 says that the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. And here comes the fight. 2 Kings 18, verses 17 through 18. So the king of Assyria sent his top three military chiefs from Lashish with a strong military force to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the laundry commons. They called loudly for the king. Did you hear that? Where did this conversation occur? In the same place where Isaiah had stood and talked to King Ahaz and told the people, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Remember the baby snuggly? And with all of the people of Judah listening, here is what Sennacherib's messenger says. As we go through this dialogue, I want you guys to picture this tough messenger standing at the base of this wall, speaking up at the people of Jerusalem, assembled along the wall and listening. Picture that in your head, all right? You're living in a world of make-believe, of pious fantasy. Do you think the mere words of any substitute for military, or any substitute for military strategy and troops? Now that you've revolted, revolted against me, who can you expect to help you? So be reasonable. Make a deal with my master, the king of Assyria. Do you think I've come up here to destroy this country without the express approval of God? The fact is that God expressly ordered me, attack and destroy this country. At that point, one of Hezekiah's military leaders pleads with the Assyrian messenger, please speak to us in the Aramaic language. We understand Aramaic. Don't speak in Hebrew. Everyone crowded along the city wall can understand you. So the soldier is saying, please don't speak in Hebrew because all of our people can understand that. You're demoralizing them. You're humiliating them. You're making us look bad. Speak to me and my military leaders in Aramaic instead so the regular people can't understand what you're saying. But demoralizing the people listening on the wall is exactly what the Assyrian commander is trying to do. Demoralize God's people and make them afraid. So he continues to speak in Hebrew. 
2 Kings 18, verses 27 through 30. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who, like you, will have to eat their filth and drink their urine? Oh, tough words spoken by a tough people to, to demoralize God's people, people God desperately loves. And we read in 2 Kings 18, verse 36, that through it all, the people of Judah gathered along the wall in Jerusalem, listened. They didn't say a word. And Hezekiah turns to the Lord for help. And here is the part of God's response to the, here's part of God's response to the pleads of Hezekiah. Surrounded and facing a hopeless situation against overwhelming forces, God says through the prophet Isaiah in 2 Kings 19, verses 32 through 36, he will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. The Lord delivered his people personally. Personally. You remember from a moment ago that I was walking a mile downtown in my interview suit, upset and alone after absolutely choking an interview. When I got a text message, it was from my son, Sam, who was still away at school at the time. It said, hey, Dad, I heard things didn't work out today. I'm sorry. It's going to be okay. Love you. And he was right. God delivered me and my family from absolutely out of nowhere. Um... I have no idea where I'm at in here. Um, two days after Sam's text, I got a call from a company I'd applied to months earlier with no response. I did two interviews. I signed an offer letter two days before Sam and Olivia returned home from college. In 43.1, in the book of Isaiah, God comes to people like Ahaz, like Hezekiah, like me, and like all of you. And he tells us, don't be afraid. What's the most repeated command in all of Scripture from God? The most repeated command in Scripture is don't be afraid, fear not. Some people say there, there are 365 references in the Scriptures where God implores us, don't be afraid, fear not. God, like any good father, does not want us to be afraid. In 43.1, he holds fast to us through our, all our adventures and reminds us, I have redeemed you. Now, what does redeemed mean by definition? It means to win back or buy back, to liberate by paying a price, to release from blame or debt, to change from worse to better, to purify, to put back into proper condition, to repair, to restore, to deliver, to save. In 43.1, God tells us that. 
to me, redeemed is what's, what's illustrated in the following story that I heard once in, in a sermon. Um, many of you have heard me tell this story um, before, and it's one of my favorites. Um, it's from a book titled Mortal Lessons, where the author Richard Seltzer, Seltzer writes this. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. And so she laid there, her young husband in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, me, he and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze and touch each other so generously, so greedily. The young woman speaks, will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent, but the young man smiles. I like it, he says. Why, it's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. That's redeemed to me. That's an, an illustration of Isaiah 43.1 to me. When you feel hopeless or alone or it feels like the world is beating you down and saying, I don't want you. You're not what I want. God comes to us in these times and says to you specifically by name, I want you desperately and there's nothing in the world I won't do to make you mine. That's the God I find in Isaiah 43.1, and that's why these words mean so much to me. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Let's pray, and then, and, uh, then you'll be all excused, okay? <sighs> Father, thank you so much for your word. Even more, Father, thank you for the constant reminders throughout Scripture of the desperate, tenacious love you have for us and the promises you make of that love. Father, we pray this week that we will hold fast to you, never loosen our grip through all our adventures this week and that we would love you desperately and always remember the tenacious you love you have for us, Father. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your presence. Pray all these things in your name. In Jesus' name you pray. Amen.